0: Chapter 7, Melvin. Murrah was a rich school named for William Belton Murrah. There was also a hall at Millsaps College named after him. He had been a bishop in the Methodist Episcopal Church South, so I guessed he had been a good one, a good bishop. I didn't know what bishops did, but this town wanted to have him remembered. Religion seemed to dog after me wherever I went. Church was an important thing to a lot of people. Murrow High School was founded in 1954, the same year as my own birth, and the Brown versus Board of Education decision to integrate. A blue and silver crest was etched on the school's face. The color was Air Force Blue in the shade Air Superiority. It was imposing and featured two colossal horses reared up on their hind legs. Murrah's mascot was the Mustang, and who doesn't love a wild Mustang? Maybe this was a good sign, the color blue and the horses. This day was the official execution of the Supreme Court decision. Even though a decision to desegregate had been handed down way back in the 50s, Jackson was just now getting around to it. The bulk of students from what I could see were all white. They looked well put together and finished, like the kids from Thomas Road back in Beaumont. It looked like beach blanket bingo with everybody wearing sweaters. The line of armed officers put me off. I'd never seen cops with guns off TV. A big yellow school bus pulled up slow and you could hear the brakes decompressing like the breath of something dying. We all looked at the black student sitting inside. I heard the bus driver say, Go on and get off, niggers. That was shocking. Sure, I'd heard the word, but it was said in private by people who considered themselves too civilized to say it out loud in public. The openness of expression here was astounding. You really picked up on the regional attitude, for lack of a better word. One by one, the students began to step down. The young men wore suit jackets with ties and starched shirts. The girls had perfectly coiffed hair, processed to look like the girls in magazines, and wore new dresses and coats. There were only a few, maybe 10 or so, and they looked scared. I was scared too, and I wanted to hop on that bus and ride far away from this place. The bus took off and left them standing alone in the midst of of the police squad cars parked in a semicircle around the front entrance. The engines were running and the lights were flashing on top. The line of helmeted officers was armed with nightsticks and guns. There was something fearful about them. They looked like they took their job seriously, and it was a blood-curdling sight to behold. A school secretary wearing spectacles with rhinestones peered out of the window from inside. One student, a white girl, was sitting in a group near the main door. She looked like any ordinary high school kid and wore her hair shoulder length. She was making a weird sign in the shape of two O's with her fingers touching. I thought it was something like sorority girls might do to let you know they were in a club. It wasn't until way later I found out what it really meant. She was making the white power sign. The gesture signified the number 8, the letter H being the 8th letter of the alphabet. This girl was demonstrating the code for Heil Hitler. There was good reason to be nervous. The bell rang long and hard. It was time to go in. Schools were filled with people who had capacity for intense cruelty. A popularity contest, I was always doomed to lose. Schools could be scary places, but this one was spine-tingling. There was apprehension like something scary was afoot. It was in the air. I noticed a shy black girl making her way inside. She wore a crisp dress with new shoes. Her hair was styled in a 60s bouffant with a tiny pink bow. I looked over at her, but she kept her eyes downward. I didn't reach out. What was there to say anyway? It seemed like everybody had a friend to walk to class with but her. And me. My first class was American government. The teacher was called Teach. I knew right off because he had written the word Teach in capital letters across the blackboard. He looked really old to be a teacher. He was completely white-headed and he was black. He stood at the front of the classroom, tall and proud, his hands clasped in front of him. He waited for the final class member to enter before he started to speak. Some of the students looked put off. The whole class was white, and I wondered if they'd ever had a black teacher before. I suspected most of them never had any dealings with Negroes outside of service positions. I'd lost count of how many times I'd heard white girls talk about growing up with their black maids, like it made them more credible than other whites. The kids here were from the 60s and had probably learned to abolish the N-word, their bias muted and bewildering. Wanda always said there were good niggers and bad niggers, but she didn't consider herself prejudiced. The door opened slowly, and one more face peeked inside. A young black male student entered the class and walked past staring quiet eyes to the only empty seat left in the room. It was the one behind me. Everybody remained silent as Teach walked slowly up to the front of the room, his footsteps clicking along the hard tile floor. He picked up a brand new piece of chalk, broke it in half, and began writing in cursive across the board. I could see the fine dust spray from each letter, It read, Mr. Jackson Hill Montgomery. He then took his chalk and underlined the word teach several times. I've been teaching young people American government for 40 some odd years. Somewhere along the way, the students began calling me teach. Then he took the eraser and rubbed out his formal name. Only teach remained. We are experiencing a monumental moment in history right now, children. I expect we'll be doing quite a bit of learning in the next few months. Mississippi is the last state to practice desegregation, and that has brought us all together in this room to learn. He walked over to the sideboard and pulled down a map of the United States, diagrammed in pink, yellow, blue, and green with brown mountains. I'd like to try an experiment, he said. You more inquisitive students may adhere to the class text if you've a mind to, but I suspect we might learn more this semester if we try to observe the history going on right around us, history in the making. He waved his arm across the South Atlantic states and continued, All around these United States of America, he looked across the room at us, are people of different races and religions, who for some reason or other settle in this or that place to practice their own form of living. Now class, I have an assignment for you. We are going to study different people who have changed government in their time all kinds of ways. He walked over to the desk and picked up a brown paper bag. He reached inside and went on. I'm going to pass out a piece of paper with a name on it to every other one of you students. He had already started walking around the room and doling out the slips of paper. What you're going to do is pair up with the classmate seated next to you and begin working on a report due at the end of the semester. This paper will be a large percentage of your final grade. A pretty girl with dark hair and an expensive green sweater raised her hand. Teach pointed to her. Yes, ma'am, you have a question? She spoke out with the confidence of bred-in Southern culture. Babe would say she smelled like money. In our former American government class, we were studying the continental signing of the Declaration of Independence. Will we be resuming the formal class plan or just jumping around haphazardly? Her voice betrayed a lifetime of honed-in caste distinction. I sensed... She'd be more comfortable had Teach been maintaining her lawn rather than teaching her about government. She held up her paper. I got Josephine Baker. She sounded irritated. What has she got to do with American government? Teach laughed right out loud. She had a whole lot to do with government, as you will discover in your research. Isn't she a Negro? Yes, ma'am, she is that. Are all these assignments going to be colored people? She sounded like Granny did that time she won the new sewing machine at the state fair and then found out everybody who signed up had won one, but she had to buy the fancy cabinet, which ended up costing more than the sewing machine. Boy, was she mad. She didn't curse much, but when she got angry, she'd say she was so mad she could shed her britches. And that was one set of britches that wouldn't be getting made on a state fair sewing machine. He smiled at her. I expect you smart children have learned all you either want or need to about formal plans laid out by the school board. From here on in, I'd like to help you envision how our government applies to real life. We have a situation here that begs examining. And we have an opportunity to make our own history and see the outcome in real time. There are possibilities here, class, a whole new landscape where you have a say-so about the rules and rule of law that keeps this country a great country, the best country in the whole wide world. He stood back a little to let us take it all in, and so we could look at the pull-down map. Outside through the window, the cold wind whipped at the last few leaves still clinging to a giant oak tree. I wasn't so sure. Teach's voice was lulling, and right here in Mississippi, we are experiencing the application of these laws. We are at a place where the American government has had to come down and demand that it is a right for all children to learn, to acquire an education no matter what color they might be or what church they attend. The girl in the green sweater shot her arm up again. She wasn't going to let him off the hook that easy. Teach nodded to her. Yes, ma'am, young lady. You said before that federal law prevails over state law in cases of severe disagreement. I would like to know where that line is drawn and the state is allowed to retain her independence. She stuck her chin out a little. Teach answered her question with a question. Who has heard of money? No one answered at first, then a boy with a surfer haircut raised his arm. Money like cash? A few of the students giggled. Teach answered, No, sir, Money, the little town here in Mississippi about a hundred miles north. When nobody said anything, he continued, It was the site of a great crime against a boy not much younger than you students, Emmett Till. He was only fourteen years old and visiting his uncle who lived there in Money. Young Emmett Till was murdered. He was tortured, beaten, and shot in the face. He looked out at us, but the room stayed quiet, deadly quiet. I could feel the presence of the boy sitting in the desk behind me. I was feeling so many things at that moment. Shame, sadness, horror. I felt afraid, and I felt sorry. Teach walked across the room to a phonograph sitting on a table. He turned it on and placed the needle on a record album. I could hear voices and clapping in the recording, then a guitar. The voice of Joan Baez pierced the room. She was singing about that young boy, about Emmett Till. I saw the black-haired girl in the green sweater whisper to her friend, I've never had a Negro for a teacher before. When they began laughing, I finally caught a glimpse of the boy sitting behind me. He was very still, like a statue, and stared straight ahead. I heard Joan singing about the young boy going into a store to buy some bubblegum and candy. That part stuck in my head. What would have happened if Emmett Till hadn't turned around to say goodbye? I couldn't erase that image. Teach had opened up an old worn copy of Look magazine to an article and placed it on the desk of a student in the far corner. He motioned for us to pass it around while we finished listening to the song. Most people didn't really look at it and just handed it to the next person. By the time it got to me, the song was almost over and so was class. The article featured an interview with J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, the two men who had killed Emmett Till. I didn't have time to read the whole thing, but I didn't want to be like the others and just dismiss it like that boy's life didn't matter. I made myself a mental note to find out more. JW reminded me of Big Jim. The bell rang loud and interrupted the rest of the song. The kids began chattering to each other and pouring out into the hall. Teach said, the young mind is a wonderful place. You have a great gift to use. Don't foul that ground. He smiled at the few of us left and class was over. Outside the door, a group of girls encircled the black-haired girl from class. It reminded me of a girl I knew from Beaumont. Her name was Manon, and she was the most popular girl in school. If you could bottle what Manon had, you could sell it to Hollywood. Everybody wanted to be her, or at least be near her. This Jackson girl was a lesser imitation of the real thing. I heard one of the girls say, "Cara, we're on the same team. I got Josephine Baker, too. Cara didn't seem that thrilled at the prospect. I'm Melvin. I turned around to see who was speaking to me. We got Emmett Till, he said. Melvin was the student seated behind me. He held up the piece of paper Teach had given him. I was glad. I hadn't seen anybody else in class that I cared to team up with. Mrs. Canterbury's democracy was unlike any other class I'd ever been in. Diane Canterbury was youthful and smart. She was the kind of person who exerted strength. Right off the bat, she made an announcement that she subscribed to the official Soviet Union newspaper, Pravda. I'd never heard anything but bad about Russia, but Mrs. Canterbury seemed like somebody who sought the truth about things and wouldn't put up with too much riffraff. I had a good feeling that landed somewhere between learning and hope, and if she said we could learn from the Russian newspaper, I was willing to hear what she had to say. Melvin and I were both in this class and found seats together. Mrs. Canterbury started off with, How do you feel about the world? She looked around the class and took in all our faces. How would you like to make the rules that run the entire earth? I'd never thought about it other than mad scientists in cartoons trying to take over the world. What part could somebody like me play? I thought I heard somebody whisper commie, but I couldn't see who said it. She continued talking while walking around the classroom. Diane Canterbury struck me as being a strong woman. She had thick, dark hair cut short and wore a light orange dress. There was a sureness about her that translated and made me feel like I could do things. It felt good. We will divide the classroom into countries for a game. Are you up for that? When she reached her desk, she held up a board game. Who wants to play? When everybody remained quiet, she burst out laughing. What's the matter? Are you afraid you're going to learn something? That broke the ice and people started to come down off their high horse a little. We were divided into sections, each group designated as a country. Ours was Germany. I didn't know anything about Germany other than the Nazis, but was curious to familiarize myself. Melvin and I were both in the same group. He had skin like chocolate. Mrs. Canterbury spoke in a low voice when she addressed our group. I imagine you're thinking how overwhelming this concept is that you are representing an actual country, right? Somebody said, yes, ma'am, and she continued. My suggestion is you find someone interesting. Put a face on it, so to speak. Have any of you heard of Rudy Dutschka? She pronounced it Dutschka with ease. May I? She reached for my notebook and wrote the name Rudy Dutschka in broad strokes. All of us looked at my notebook where she had written the name. You might find an interest in this man. He is a prominent leader in the German student movement and a figure which bears the witness to just how powerful a voice can be. She dropped a stack of mimeographed papers on one of the desks. The picture didn't translate well through the printing process, but the power and determination in their faces was clear. We studied our handouts in silence. The people didn't look much older than we were, yet they were changing things and defining history way over in Europe. Our group included a blonde boy who introduced himself as Johnny Ford, like the car. That's how he said it, like the car. Two girls, Sharon and Tricia, and then Melvin and myself. Sharon was pert and blonde. She said something to Johnny Ford about having seen him play football. She had a big smile for him. Murrah's dining hall was modern. I was familiar with school cafeterias since Granny worked as a school lunch server. She used to bring me with her sometimes and give me one of the hot yeast rolls right out of the oven. Murrah's cafeteria was staffed by black workers who looked like they were somebody's grandmothers too. I saw Johnny Ford eating lunch with a group of muscular boys. They were clean cut and looked like athletes. I heard one of them say something that sounded like how you say good and tight in German and they all laughed hard at the joke. Students huddled over their lunches laughing and talking with one another. I saw Kara going on with her circle of girlfriends and I thought about Manon again. She had what they call charisma. Just looking at Manon, you wouldn't think she was pretty in a classic way. Her mouth was too wide when she smiled and her eyes squinted when she laughed, which was often. She wore her thick brown hair in a bob like nobody else wore, but on her it looked perfect. Not just anybody could pull that style off, but a lot of girls in our freshman class tried to. She made it her own. She had perfect olive skin that never got one blemish. You could tell Manon was going places and was going to be somebody. She was that special. She was always nice to everybody, and she was nice to me. I carried my tray over to a table near the back. I didn't know anybody well enough to join them. I sat there alone, but not for long. Is this seat taken? I looked up, and there stood Melvin. He was tall. I shook my head no and smiled. He pulled out the chair next to me and sat down. He adjusted his tie and opened up a paper bag. His lunch looked good. He had real fried chicken that made my plate lunch lose its luster. I could smell the rich, home-cooked aroma and it made me feel sad for some reason. Do you want a piece? Mother always gives me too much. I took a thigh. I always liked the dark meat chicken better than the other cuts. I bit into the cold chicken and it made me feel warm all over. I smiled at Melvin and we laughed at nothing. It felt good to have a friend. I could smell his cologne and knew I'd never smelled a fragrance like it before. I would never forget it. Like when your mind creates a memory and sends you a little note about it. You know, every time you smell that smell or hear that word, you'll remember. Most boys I'd ever known wore British sterling or English leather from the drugstore. Melvin smelled like how I thought Germany would smell, like a place of mystery with cold air and dark buildings and lots of secrets. Do you like the class, I asked. Melvin was a polite eater. I liked to indulge myself at mealtimes, so I was mindful to eat slow. Which one? We're in, too. I didn't want to remember the heartache of Emmett Till right then, so I said, democracy, running our own country. Do you know about Germany, he said. Um, oh, oh, I've never been there or anything, just from the movies. I didn't want him to think I was stupid. I tried to think of a smart film I'd seen about Germany, but they were all Nazi movies. Like Casablanca? The chicken tasted sweet in my mouth. Yeah, with Humphrey Bogart, Melvin said. He had good answers. We sat for a minute eating our lunch amidst the clatter of plates and loud students. We were a part of our own world. Is Casablanca a country? I looked at Melvin and he laughed. We didn't really talk much, me and Melvin. There wasn't a whole lot of need for speaking. We had an instant comfort with one another that came natural. Melvin pulled out a piece of pie and carefully removed the saran wrap. It was lemon meringue. I thought how strange my dessert experiences in Jackson so far had all been lemon meringue pie. He broke it in two and gave me half. The tangy smell caught up my senses. I took a bite and it was unmistakable. The recipe was the same as Janine's. I know my pie. Where'd you get this, I asked him. My mother made it. She makes the best pie in the world. Is your mother Janine? He stopped chewing and looked at me. Yes, my mother's Janine. That's her name. We live there. Where she works, I said. At the Dupree's. For a split second, a darkness crossed his face. It was so quick, though, I almost missed it. He looked straight ahead. My mother does work there. I don't like those people. He didn't want to elaborate, so I didn't press him. My mother's pie, he said, like he was telling me about a dream. Well, I said, it's the best pie in the world. You probably can't get good lemon pie in Germany. I was spellbound by Janine. I knew when I'd first seen her, she was unique and special. Now I was even more intrigued. I wanted to know all about her and Melvin. I was very happy to be friends. He smiled at me, and that sealed the memory for me to keep. I would remember this day, and I would always love lemon meringue pie. We made plans to meet at the Jackson Public Library and begin working on our government project. I hadn't seen their library yet and was keen to go. I'd spent many hours at Terrell Library in Beaumont, It looked like those old castles out in the English moors I'd read about. I was intrigued. And one other thing. I didn't feel as alone anymore. But I also knew I must be very careful here. Jackson wasn't safe and just as desolate and dangerous as those English moors.